You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Thanks for joining our weekly podcast again. Um, as usual, we've got a lot to talk about this week, uh, particularly in battery storage and networks and uh, the falling costs and the, the rising prices on one hand. We've also got a new addition to our lineup today. Uh, joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Analysts. Uh, hi, Giles, and hi to all the listeners. And also joining us uh, on a special occasion, the first time we've gone from a twosome to a threesome, is Oliver Yates. Hi, Giles, and listeners, welcome. Um, yeah, Oliver, you've, um, you were the former chief executive of the uh, Clean Energy Finance Corporation and you're a uh, industry consultant, I think your, de- your full description is now. I think that's the way to, to describe me at the moment, Giles. I'm enjoying being on the outside and, uh, and certainly there's a lot to talk about in this sector. And Oliver, Oliver, just before we start, what, what do you plan to consult in? What, what do you regard as your, your speciality? Well, I think it's probably going to be the overall uh, transition, the economic transition that's going to come through, the carbon pathway and how we're going to uh, drive change from here through the two degrees that we need to uh, need to get to. It touches so many industries and creates so many opportunities that, um, that as a banker by background, um, I can see... Uh, enormous opportunities um, for all in this space. So I'm quite, uh, I'm quite excited. Um, I see a lot of change, and uh, I'm looking forward to it being out, outside. Gosh, well, that almost tempts another question now about whether. Um, and I'll just have one more question before we go into the news of the week. Um, you, as a banker, see the opportunities. Do you think the rest of the banking industry sees the same opportunities? Look, I think that they do. Um, I think there's a big switch. It's uh, it's been driven um, often through uh, individuals and pension funds is where the money lies. That's been driven down into institutions. And you know, banks make money out of trading. So, you know, if you talk to a, a stockbroker, Giles, you know, they don't really care whether the market's going up or the market's going down. They just want you to trade. So any form of volatility uh, is good. This transition is going to create enormous volatility. It'll create a lot of asset turnover. It'll create opportunities for people to make money, opportunities for people to lose money. And as you know, the way banks work, uh, there's often a fee uh, whichever way and whatever happens. Indeed. Look, lots to talk about there, but let's go quickly through the news of the week. Um, I'm going to start off with Redflow, the um, Australian battery storage manufacturer, and pretty much the only Australian battery storage manufacturer, though that's not quite true. The um, uh, zinc bromine flow batteries, they're not the same as lithium, completely different chemistry, really exciting technology. But they did admit this week, David, that um, they're not going to be able to match the uh, the lithium-based te- um, chemistries on price. They're still going to go for the local market because they think that there'll be some people who will want the quality and what it is that they can actually deliver. But they're just basically giving up on the mass market. I think they did have this vision of being able to sort of dominate the market, but they're not going to do that. They're going to focus on that particular niche and also things like larger scale installations such as commercial buildings, um, industrial complexes, telcos, and they've done a few contracts there. It's an interesting development, isn't it? Because it, there is this sort of, you know, in Australia, we do, we do seem to want to go for the cheapest at all times and not necessarily the best. What did you make of it? Well... Giles, it's hard. It's hard to say. I mean, what's the best? The best has so many different dimensions: the size, the practicality, um, uh, the number of competitors, and, and the options. All, all factor into it. In the end, it was from a, from an investor or perspective. If you owned Redflow, you, you, you're making a big bet that they can 
have enough of an advantage that they can um, be a world beater essentially because they're competing against so many lithium things. And in the end, it's not just at the household sector, it's, it's big management. Most people, most battery storage decisions around the world have been made in lithium because it's the easy choice. You're not going to get fired for choosing lithium battery, the old IBM sort of thing. If you choose, if you choose a, a zinc flow battery that no one else has got, if it works, wonderful. If it doesn't work, that's a big problem. That's interesting. Oliver, you got any take on that? Uh, not really, Giles. I mean, I think the battery space is moving so fast to be able to get it right. I think you'd be a, a genius uh, here. It's, um, it's rapidly changing. Indeed. And on the same sort of line, um, we did an interview with Enphase this week and um, Enphase were one of the sort of the uh, the biggest, best ch sort of chess beaters, as it were, when they came out last year before the launch of their um, plug-in um, AC battery, talking about 60,000 units to be sold in the first 12 months. Well, it turns out they're not going to get there and probably not anywhere near it. Um, what they have discovered is that a lot of people who are installing battery storage do like the idea of having a backup generator. Um, or having it as backup, because when they do have a blackout, they probably feel they look pretty silly if they've got a battery and they can't use that um, their solar or their storage. So they're thinking of adding that. It's an interesting um, aspect, isn't it, David? You probably, oh, look, I've got, I've actually got one of their batteries and um, I did have a blackout a couple of weeks ago for a, for half a day and did feel like a bit of a goose not having, not being connected, but I do have a backup generator, which I switched on for an hour because it's so damn noisy, I wouldn't want it any longer. But I probably only needed a backup generator or something like that once a year. Is it worth paying the extra for backup? Well, I, I think myself, um, depends on what price you you. You, you pay on time. It's the same with toll roads. People overvalue their time, the amount they save. But I do the same thing. I always choose the toll road, even though uh, probably it's not a, a good use of money. Um, I, I think with the Tesla Powerwall 2, for instance, which does offer backup, uh, it takes up a significant uh, part or a significant extra cost. And personally, I'm, I'm prepared to live with the small blackouts. I, I would say, let's get back to nature. Uh, and, and manage to live without electricity for half an hour and make you appreciate how good it is when it does come back on. <laughs> Indeed. Look, um, th those, are the two major, those are the two major local developments. But look, the big international development, I think, was from Tucson, um, where the local utility there signed this power purchase agreement for a 20 megawatt, was it? No, it was a 100 megawatt solar plant with about 20 megawatt and 60 megawatt hours of battery storage. And I may have got that number wrong. It was 30 megawatts and 120 hours of battery storage. The interesting thing here is the very low price of solar, which was below three US cents a kilowatt hour, and combined the price of solar and storage was less than 4.5 cents a kilowatt hour, which is much less than the prevailing cost of wholesale electricity there, and almost, or just about one third of the cost of the previous PPA, which has just struck a few months ago in Hawaii for the similar sort of thing. Um, David, it's a bit bit hard to catch up with these um, these falling cost trajectories, isn't it? Well, it's great news to see the costs are coming down. However, I would caution listeners to be careful about those headline costs because they are coming after the benefit of the investment tax credit, uh, which is quite uh, like, at least on the, on the solar part of it, it's about 22 US dollars a megawatt hour. So let's say it was 30 at the at the delivered price to Tuscon plus the 22 that's 55 US that's about 70 or something 75 which is not Aussie which is not so far away from the numbers that we're talking but it's still substantially down to where we were a year, were a year ago now in the USA I understand that you can also get the investment tax credit on the on the battery part of things so 
If you added the whole thing together, you'd probably get into around 100 Aussie on my numbers. Uh, now, the Hawaii contract, which was the benchmark before this, was, I think, about 110 US. So it's a definite cost reduction. But uh, and we don't know whether the solar has a, um, uh, um, a fixed tilt solar, a single axis tracking or not. So I, I, I look forward to reading more about this. It's certainly a very exciting development. Oliver, the um, falling cost of technology, it's kind of taken a lot of people by surprise and it continues to take people by surprise. It is going to um, take everybody by surprise. It's not just in this sector and in all sectors. And this is, this is the hard thing for investors to, uh, to predict, Giles. If you're owning uh, competing assets and you think that they're, you know, they're going to have a life of a period of time, um, you can just be now so wrong. Um, you can be so wrong in relation to your forecasts. I, I don't think the, 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 any of us would have credibly thought that, that combined gas, um, that combined solar and, um, and batteries would be a meaningful competitor to gas in the short term. Gas was, you know, claimed by everybody to be the, uh, the transition fuel. Uh, well, it looks like the transition fuel just uh, finished its transition and uh, we're on our way to the next <laughs> one. It's... Uh, it's it's extraordinary, but we've we've seen this. I, I remember back to the first, you know, it was the ACT feed-in tariffs. I think they were at like four hundred and twenty dollars a megawatt hour, and then they were at two hundred. And now, you know, someone doing a reverse auction for a state today is probably going to be talking about eighty dollars. And these are these are all within the last four to five years. You know, it's just it's 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 um, it's very very dis it's very disruptive, and 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 people are going to be right, and people are going to lose money as well. Hmm. It's an interesting idea because we've got falling costs on one side, but we seem to have rising costs on the other, David, and I'm going to take you now to the network's uh, federal court decision that was handed down this week, and you know a lot more about this than I do, but essentially the Australian regulators' attempts to keep put a cap or even minimise or even reduce the amount of money that can be spent by the networks and the amount of money that they can then get back through interest charges, etc., has been knocked on the head by um, a court appeal. What does this mean? And, and, and maybe you can just take us through first what it is and then what it means. Well, so the this is, uh, probably we could t have a whole hour devoted to this topic and I, I would bore listeners within the first 15 seconds. So to keep it very brief, uh, the AER, the Australian Energy Regulator, has been trying to change the regulation because they perceive that particularly in New South Wales, uh, network prices have been rising uh, rapidly. By and large, across all the electricity distribution networks, what we've seen over the last decade is a more than doubling of the unit price, even while volumes have declined uh, per customer, certainly, and, and overall volumes have been static. So they were trying to, the regulator keeps trying to rein in uh, the price and return, and one of the things they did was to introduce, uh, to try and take advantage of low interest rates, if you like, by a move to a 10-year transition on, on, on the average interest cost that they were going to allow in revenue. You confused already? What does it mean? What it means basically is that uh, electricity network prices are going to continue to rise at probably 2 to 3% per year, although in New South Wales, as a result of the sales process and guarantees given in that process, prices, network prices in 2019 will be lower than in 2014. Uh, at least for Ausgrid and for Endeavour. And, and that, that's a great outcome. But in, in Victoria and in South Australia, 
and probably in Queensland, network prices are going to keep rising and that's going to, uh, we know generation prices have pretty much doubled and what this means is that essentially uh, people with distributed electricity are going to see a greater opportunity because the opportunity cost of not moving to distributed electricity is going to be uh, uh, higher than it was before this decision was handed down. Well, it seems to me that um, under these scenarios, we've got the rising cost of wholesale power and the rising cost of um, transmission and, and distribution. Uh, the current models are just basically unsustainable. Um, Oliver, do you want to pitch in there? Well, I think the article that you just released today, Giles, was, was bang on. You've got two forces working against each other, which are pushing everybody off the grid and to look at new technology. Um, but that's know, not necessarily the thing that we actually want to happen, is it? No, it isn't. It doesn't make, it doesn't make great social sense in any possible way, but... You know, there's a lot of things that happen in this world um, where uh, people will do stuff based upon the greed of the dollar, and uh, it doesn't make social sense to do it. So, um, this is this is just another uh, another market that will operate in its own self-interest, potentially uh, to its own detriment, as you pointed out. Yeah, and David, you made the point that this also encourages uh, uh, um, renewables uh, across the board. I mean, how long do you think the networks can keep on going like this before, say, well? I don't know whether I can swear on my own podcast, but before the shit hits the fan, so to speak. Well, quite a while is the short answer. It's all of this is death by a thousand cuts, and uh, um, it, 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 it's like the it's like climate change. You know, it happens so gradually most of the time. Like, if network prices going up at two percent a year isn't really going to cause most people too much fuss, and uh, to be honest, uh, when you couple it with generation prices going up and the overall price of electricity has gone up by. Um, say say 10 or 20 percent, uh, then uh, it starts to be that much more attractive. But look, the networks understand these days that they need to adapt. And even though changing their tariff models won't do anything, I mean, if you look at Osnet, we had a good look at Osnet this 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 week. They've they've got to spend a lot more money on like bushfire on vegetation management. I mean, they really do have to. They've doubled their spending there because of safety requirements following the bushfires, and because guess what? With climate change, everything's growing a bit more, and 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 most <laughs> of their capex is in maintaining the networks. So they don't have much control over their costs. In all honesty, they, uh, most of their costs are essentially fixed in a lot of ways. But what they can do is change their uh, tariff structure in a way to become more cooperative to introduce their customers and make their customers true partners instead of just customers. Yeah. David, David, do you think there's a possibility sooner or later that, the, that actually there is just a write-down for that people are required to amortise? You know, if, if, if people are going to pull away from distributed assets and not value them as highly... Why, uh, why are they not being required to be devalued? I mean, are these assets really worth the regulated value that we're applying to them? Or does someone say, no, the disruption's so great, sorry investors, you, uh, yeah, you, you bet on this basically being a long-term asset, but this disruption is so great now, people are just not using your distributed assets in the way they were before, and therefore we're not going to give you a regulated return based upon that asset. Well, um, so, Oliver, in South Australia, the lease is for 200 years. I think in New South Wales, it's for 100 years uh, on the Sosgrid sale and that. And, and um, essentially, the asset base was based on the depreciated optimised replacement cost. Uh, one acronym everyone will remember is DORC. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it, looks like, um, it looks like the customers are looking like the DORCs. <laughs> Well, and they don't really, the, the law doesn't allow for much change at the moment. It would, I'm not sure what laws would have to be changed to make a write-off possible. 
uh, but but it'd, um, it'd be difficult in my opinion. But I guess there's got to be a circuit breaker because if the number of people on the grid or the, the amount that's being used from the grid does keep on falling, then their ability to recoup their revenue um, from a diminished usage or a diminished um, number of customers is going to hit breaking point at some point. So when population growth slows down, uh, we'll see some reduction in the capital expenditure and, and basically we'll have another look at it then. Also, remember in Victoria, they've had this very expensive way of introducing uh, advanced metering, interval metering, and still not probably taking full advantage of that too. So I think it will settle down a bit, but there's a lot of maintenance capex required and, and their costs, mm -hmm. their actual costs are going to keep on being high. You know, they need enough revenue to recover their, their, the capital investment they're making and their actual expenses. I, I, I don't say they haven't done very well, both Osnet and Spark and have been excellent share market investments in the past three or three years, but uh, they have a lot of expenses, mm. true cash outflows. Great for shareholders, but I think sometime down the track, and I'm gonna be one of them, I'm sitting here just paying my, um, paying my connection fees at the moment, and if in five or 10 years time, the cost of having um, going off the grid is, um, is um, compelling, then that may be a decision I will make. But look, I'm not gonna dwell on that, because I wanna get back to Oliver, and you wrote a very nice piece for us today talking about the uh, Victorian Renewable Energy Target, and the reason that they should probably get on with it, because the quicker yes. we have renewables in the system, then the quicker costs will fall, and that will be good for jobs, industry, and um, costs. And Victoria. And Victoria. In, in Victoria, <laughs> that's right. Well, so now, well, look, look, Giles. The reason that I that I went there is that the the, the, the VRET's been spoken about for a while, but you know these schemes are used uh, very effectively globally, and. The concern sometimes that I have is that people think that it's all about renewables. And, and given that we have in Victoria these very, very large concentrated generators, uh, which are really now only going to be, you know, the large ones being, your, you know, your lawn, um, Loyang A, Loyang B, um, that, that you can't close them down uh, without a price effect unless you've built ahead of that closure. So you can't take that type of supply out of the market unless you build ahead. And, and so I look at it and I say, okay, well, look, regardless of whatever else anybody may be talking about, renewables or no renewables, given that renewables are the only thing that actually is going to provide long-term power at a low price, uh, you end up with a scenario to say, if I'm going to replace something like a 2,000 megawatt unit, I would need to build, you know, 50 smaller renewable energy plants. And we need to get on with doing those before you close them down or you will end up with higher prices after you've closed them down. Just simple economic supply and demand. So what I'm sometimes get concerned about is people think, oh, look, you know, the VRET is all about renewables. Well, actually, really, it's about replacement more than anything else. It's how do you, in the most cost-efficient way, replace the capacity that you need to replace as the old clunkers go out of the system? How do you make that capacity come on stream ahead of closure? And if you do do it ahead of closure, of course, consumers and industries better off because if you do it after closure, then of course the existing generators are better off. And I understand that that would be lovely for the existing generators, but you know it's useful sometime for people to put the basic economics on the table to say you should be going early and they should be getting on with it. Yeah, because you're saying that um, you know with, with just a few generators there, um, they manage to pretty much control the market as they have done in South Australia and pretty much in Queensland as well. Well, there's an energy security issue. You That's know, right. If, if if one of those brown coal generators went out uh, to, in some this coming summer, 
there would be major issues, not just for Victoria, but, but for the whole of the NEM. And, and that's something that I think everyone has to pay attention to. So I think we all agree, Oliver, we need all this new generation. When we come to the detail of the legislation, what's your understanding of how it's going to work? This is what's something I've really been puzzling about is Victoria will, will procure, the state will procure the electricity in the first place, but how will they pass, pass the electricity on to the customers? Well, I think it's going to be done through contract of differences and where the, 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 actually the difference will then go back into the, uh, in, into the cost base. But we're yet to see how that is to be done. But what I do like about what I'm hearing about it is that um, effectively the way the auctions will be run is that it can be done in a very flexible fashion. So, so I think, you know, Simon Corbell's the, um, you know, the... The renewable energy advocate there in Victoria now, having led the scheme in uh, in um, in Canberra, so he's he's very experienced in relation to these. Um, I think the Canberra schemes were, you know, version one, very basic, just give us the lowest price and uh, and we'll take it. Uh, um, in this scenario, I think there's going to be more flexibility to allow them to actually have different contracts seeking power at different times, which would allow them to better match supply and demand. And, um, and that will actually also allow them to try and bring in different forms of technology, as we're seeing in different forms of, uh, of renewable energy, particularly from a time basis. So there are projects where people are looking at some offshore wind that has a very, very different profile for the, for the dominant wind in, in Victoria, which is Western Victoria wind, which will all come at one time. So being offshore, able to offshore, have... Offshore wind in Victoria? Yes, there could be. A, yes, I, think, I think we've got a news break here. No, well, there's, there's been, I think you may have seen, I think, I'm sure you would have covered it. There's been discussions about the potential of offshore wind in Victoria. There's offshore wind everywhere, Giles. It's a question of who's going to go and uh, have a go at it. What you've been seeing is obviously around the world well-documented declines in the price of offshore wind. It's, uh, it's another... Indeed. In fact, in the, in the last renewable energy auction they had in Germany with offshore wind, they actually bid zero, which meant that they said, we'll just take the prevailing wholesale price and won't take any further subsidies. So that, that was pretty interesting. Well, and this is the part. People think wind is wind. Wind isn't wind. Wind on the Western Victoria will be very different from offshore wind or wind coming from Tasmania. So, so you know, this, this ability to... Um, look and contract based upon different times will enable people to look at renewables as, you know, they're not just wind assets or solar assets. Wind are actually, you know, could potentially find themselves very heavily back in the game because unlike solar, which obviously is all set at a certain time, uh, wind you can have, you know, uh, morning wind, afternoon wind, you can have very different patterns, which will be very useful to overall grid balancing. Well, I, I do think we're going to have to see some contracts uh, for dispatchable electricity gradually um, uh, wake, working their way into the system. So, so just, just coming back to, these, to, the, to the mechanism again, it contracts for difference. So the Victorian government buys the power, but it's still got to pass it on to households in Victoria. How will it do that? Well, that's all to be put out in the legislation, and I think we're about to see that. So I don't want to go into any detail because, uh, you know, I'm sure they've got their own, own ways of the way they wanted to go and uh, set that out. Have you got any idea on the timing, any sense of, the, of when we will see it? Look, I don't know the timing. Um, all I'm uh, all I'm putting pushing out is that uh, you know, you know, time is not is not benefiting anybody, uh, particularly as we get further and further into summer. And, and the other thing that's happening is is that some projects are obviously delaying themselves, waiting for this and um, uh, waiting to come to market. And so uh, those developers are sitting on projects ready to go, but they're all waiting for the auction to come to the table. 
Interesting. Look, we've probably got to wind it up in a, in a few minutes. I did want to get to one thing because Victorian Renewable Energy Target is one major thing that's happening. The other one that's going to be happening in just a couple of weeks now is the Finkel Review. Now, Oliver, I'm very interested in your view here. How important is the Finkel Review going to be? What would you hope to see out of it? And what do you fear that it might not do? <laughs> Well, look, I think it is going to be um, critically important. It's going to be probably um, the most referenced paper that we are going to talk about for the next 12 months. Um, I am a bit nervous uh, about uh, what we'll get, but I, I'm very hopeful. Um, I didn't really like the terms of reference, Giles. There was very, very fleeting references to climate policy within the terms of reference. That's been a missing thing from the whole energy markets in Australia for yeah, so long. That's right. So, you know, the, the, the whole carbon pathway and how his solution or blueprint fits into that carbon pathway uh, is critical. And if this plan um, comes out and doesn't take into consideration a long-term carbon pathway which takes us to um, carbon neutrality by 2050, then it is not a plan which enables us to reach the two-degree target, which is what we kind of believe or think the government has indicated that they would do because of the science, which would say that you would need to be at carbon neutrality by 2050 if you are to meet your uh, two-degree target. So I'm, I'm really hopeful that the, the roadmap sets out that blueprint framework of electricity and energy markets, which is consistent with the science. Uh, and that science is very clear in relation to the carbon budget we've got and Australia's carbon budget and how quickly that carbon budget is disappearing. And mm. I'm, you know, your listeners probably know the, cl the Climate Change Authority, I think, estimated that only two years ago that Australia's fair share of the remaining carbon budget, which is a budget that you can only have if you're going to keep the world below two degrees, is only 10 gigatons. And we're using half a gigaton a year, so we've probably got 15 years left of business usual emissions. Mm. So as chief scientist, you know, I know that the, um, the, um, the reference uh, is fleeting. In the, in, the, in the terms of reference of this report, it's fleeting to climate policy. But Alan Finkel is first and foremost the chief scientist. And whilst he's providing a report which is referenced to the terms of reference that is provided to him, I do hope uh, that, that the blueprint he provides is par as paramountly consistent with science, which is the, the number or the top label that, uh, that, that mm. he holds. Do you reckon he's going to be able to change the conversation about our energy system, though? We seem to be very much attached in many parts to this idea of this centralised fossil fuel system. We're now seeing an awful lot of people, including the new um, head of the energy market operator, talking about a whole different system, renewables-focused fo uh, distribution. Um, is he going to be able to change the mainstream debate about that, do you think? You know, if I could just nuance that, when I talk to people that say the Australian uh, about this or, or the sceptics, it's always about the unreliability of renewables. I, I believe that's the sort of political point we need to reassure the public about, that you could have lots of renewables and still have reliable electricity. I think if you could win that argument, uh, uh, it would be game over. Well, I, I, I think you're there, and I think this is the turning point. There was in his original report some references to, you know, comfortable at 40%. I, I would be hoping that pretty clearly uh, out of this report 
it will be very clear to everybody that there is no energy future which is uh, with traditional fossil fuel generators, that it will be made up of diverse renewables and that diverse renewables will end up being backed up with, with batteries because that's, that is clearly what is possible and every time we say, boy, it's expensive and we need to do it, it's amazing how quickly those prices continue to, continue to fall. So, so roadblock out of roadblock, when we found a roadblock in the system that needs to be fixed to, to cater for uh, variable um, uh, generation, it's been knocked over so fast. And that's because the whole world is, is coming to the solution at the same time. And that's why it's so exciting, because if there is a roadblock, and if there is a roadblock identified, it is a massive business opportunity if anyone can provide a solution to it. Hmm. I almost hope the Adani coal mine gets up and, and then goes broke, but actually I hope it doesn't get up, you know, and this is what, you know, I guess we all worry about so much. We can all see the, the, the future so clearly, but then you see the Adani coal mine going ahead and, and, and you know, you worry. Oliver, do you reckon the Adani coal mine's going to get up? Is, um, I, I, what's extraordinary, we've just done a bit of a, um, a, a survey and we haven't quite published the results yet, but um, there are so many large-scale solar plants under construction or reach financial close and even more in the pipeline around that area. Uh, well, look, you know, I think the only sadness would be if it did get up and um, there would be a shortage of workers up there because of all of the other alternatives. Um, <laughs> you know, th that, that the town of Townsville and the region of Townsville is sitting on a gold mine of opportunities. I mean, you've mentioned it, Giles, you've got the GenX project, you've got Sun Metals doing 116 megawatts, you've got the Clare Solar Farm by FRV at 150 under construction, you've got the Rach uh, Wind Farm at Emerald, 180 megawatts under construction, you've got Pack Hydro talking about 1,000 megawatts uh, um, down in Burdigan, you've got Pacific Hydro at Clare Creek, you've got uh, Kennedy Wind Farm, you've got Forsyth Wind Farm, and then you have one resource up there which is critically needed and, and is behind the pack, which happens to be the whole biofuels and bioplastic resources. They've got dams up there that could be built and they've got dams that are already in existence and sun and land, which could be the hub of biofuels. So, so if I... You know, I, I just don't Why the hell are they chasing a coal mine? Well, that's, that, that's what I don't, don't understand, uh, Giles. The opportunities that they have, um, if they could grasp them and look forward, uh, dwarf anything that they would get. I mean, there are these sunrise industries that are here that are real and coming through. So, you know, there's been so much talk. That town, unfortunately, gets subject to so much kind of pork barrel in talk and then nothing ever happens. Well, no one's even talked about the solar happening and it's already happening, okay? It's hmm. all over the place. No one spent a lot of time saying, oh, the government's gonna push wind, la di da di da and it's happening. So so if, if, if the market there and the people would really take focus of what is actually happening rather than what governments say might be going to happen, then uh, they would realize that they're sitting in the land of opportunity. They're in a cracker of a position. They're about the only place in Queensland, for example, where you've got wind. The rest of the state needs the wind. They've got the best solar resources. They've mm. got the best water resources, and they've got some of the best land up there for biofuels. So I look at it, and I think, what a place to be as we go into you know, a, a carbon-constrained carbon world. Townsville should be the centre of, uh, of action, but yet... Yeah, it just seems to be the centre of, you know, oh, oh well, well, help me, help me. And it's kind of like, it's there. <laughs> if you painted a fantastic future there, Oliver, I, it sounds good. 
Good on you. Look, hey, thanks very much for the debate. I'm going to have to wrap it up there because um, we've probably reached a, um, a maximum uh, patience limit for our listeners. And um, I do thank our listeners for listening. But most of all, I do thank um, David and Oliver for joining us. Um, Oliver, it's been a great pleasure. And um, hopefully we can have you back one day. No problem. Charles, just, just in five, three seconds, what's up, what have we got for next week? Um, I was going to skip over that because I hadn't actually looked. But it's going to be one <laughs> week closer to the, um, to the Finkel review. Um, and I hope finally to hear a little bit more about the battery storage tender in South Australia because they seem to have been sitting on that for a while and if they do want that 100 megawatts of battery storage in place by the summer then they're going to have to get moving pretty soon thanks oliver no problem see you bye see you thanks david see you charles